0: The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the hosts and guests as individuals and do not necessarily reflect those of advertisers or sponsors. This show is intended as entertainment and commentary only. The producers strive for verisimilitude, but nothing said on this podcast should be taken as fact by the listener or viewer without performing due diligence. The
1: existence, the physical universe, is basically playful. There
0: is no necessity for it whatsoever. It isn't going anywhere. That is to say, it doesn't have some destination that it ought to arrive at. This is Keep Your Hat On, a show by three nerdy nobodies and one nerdy kind of somebody about nothing in particular. Keep Your Hat On is brought to you by the Narrowband Broadcast Network, NBBN, the focus is on you. By PodSquadPDX.com. Painless podcasting. And by the kind support of KYHO fans everywhere through Patreon. Patreon. Create. On your own terms. Oh, Season 3 of this fucking nonsense already? Wow. The pandemic and broadcast standards are really taking their toll on things. Oh. Wait, that's today's topic! (laughs) My bad. Anyway, Dr. Mark is busy not having COVID like we suspected last episode, but he is busy setting up the new nest situation. And I'm busy being a new doggy daddy. But I know three guys who aren't busy with anything significant. So, meet the new year same as the old year. Here's Andrew, robert and everyone's favorite stereotypical 80s metalhead chris
1: and hello and welcome back this is keep your hat on the show where hell even we don't know where we're gonna go i'm andrew scott along with my good friends ty robert anthony and of course christopher vacano hey hey. Uh uh-huh and we are dr mark peterson lists today uh he's out doing home buying things with his lovely girlfriend Alex. Hello Alex. Everybody say hi to Alex.
2: Hey Alex. Hi Alex. Be home buying.
1: There we go. Hi Alex. Um and you know, happy new year to everybody. Happy Guys, new, happy year, new Alex. year. Yeah, happy new year Alex. There you go. Yeah, happy new year. How was everybody's new year so far? I know Chris's answer cuz he yeah, was here. Was, yeah, <laughs> new
2: new year's uh you know, New Year's Eve was fine. I I thoroughly enjoyed it and uh you know coming into i've i've actually decided coming into t- uh, 2022 you know everybody keeps making the observation you know that i just realized it's 2022 you know comma t o o yeah and i've decided i'm going to view it as 2022.0 as yeah. in this is this is another chance this is this is a this is a rechallenge this is an upgraded version
1: so really you're uh, going with upgrade Yes, I am. I'm going. I'm with, going. I'm going is, with. We need is, a BIOS reset. What and a do we patch. just
2: need? Like a I'm bigger going,
3: dumpster to light on fire? What? <laughs> there I'm you going, go.
2: This is this is the new version. We got a new opportunity. It's it's 365 days in front of us that we don't know what they're going to be. But I'm putting energy into the thought that
1: it's going to be a decent year. Well, bless you, Polly, I mean, Chris, Uh, (laughs) you know, I, I, I don't fault you for that. I think if we were staring at this as the abyss, we might think it feels like it would just be too hard to bear, but I will go with you in this way. I think we're losing sight of some important positive things that we can bring from both 2020 and 2021. This is not the beginning of the pandemic. No, it might be knee-deep into it or or whatever. And I know that we're all looking for the, you know, the air quotes end of the pandemic. But it's not how it was when it started. It's not as bad as it was when it started where we had no therapies, no treatments, no ideas or understandings right. about what right. we're dealing with. Now, that's different. It's
2: not new and shocking. No, we I mean, have
1: we have and, and all the things that have come online, aside from the vaccines, which are all, you know, showing to be very effective, especially the MRNA vaccines. And again, everybody here at KYHO, we're all stabbed and boosted. We encourage you to do so as well. But we also have things like monoclony monoclonal antibody therapy. Can you which, say that again? Monoclonal antibody therapy, monoclonal antibody therapy, monoclonal antibody therapy. <laughs> okay. There, uh, now, uh, I feel, little... now I feel really good about myself. As a professional <laughs> talker, <laughs> I'm really proud of myself. I don't even have to edit that. Uh, yeah, and I'm certainly not going to beatbox over it. But, um, you know, we have antibody therapy. We have, um, you know, remdesivir is something that you know, helps some people, but its help profile seems to be pretty limited. But more than anything, what we really have, even in light of Omicron, we have such a better understanding. Medical science and pharmaceutical research science knows so much more about this virus, and that is showing benefits to us now. And what's really more interesting to me is this pandemic might be the beginnings of our ability to deal with future pandemics before they turn into pandemics. One of the most exciting things that's happening right now in pharmaceutical research science is the use of nanoparticle, doing it again, nanoparticle technology. What was that again? Inve- Nanoparticle technology, nanoparticle technology, nanoparticle technology. There. Yes, I'm just winning so hard today. Um, No, nanoparticle technology in vaccines that are a way to address viruses in a whole new way. Where, you know, and, and again, we have a long and unfortunately storied history with coronaviruses in the human population, they all start zoologically. They all start in an animal. Often, it's a bat. Sometimes uh, it can be rats, ferrets, mice. Um, pangolin. But, yeah, pangolins. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which I'm really sad about because that's one of my like favorite saying. animals. Yeah, pangolin is fun to say too. It's a pangolin, fun. pangolin, pangolin, pangolin. And they're cute. They're cute. They're cute. But um, the the big thing about it is is that it's often from those animal populations where it jumps into the human population. And so, you know, everybody, well, not everybody, uh, but a lot of us our generation remember the SARS outbreak. Um, and, you know, the, the thing that we tend to forget is that COVID-19 is a SARS infection. The actual vector is SARS-CoV-2. And monoclonal antibody therapy addresses the infection By way of taking antibodies that have been developed in other people and then putting them into you. And it's a great therapy. It's a valuable therapy. But this new nanoparticle technology therapy in a vaccine means instead of just vaccinating you against COVID, we're talking, we're on the cusp of being able to vaccinate people for all coronaviruses, for all. Everything in the SARS family—that's going to be revolutionary—to be able to vaccinate, even if it's uh, a vaccine that requires an annual, like our flu stab, Yeah, being like a, able like, to protect yeah. you against all respiratory viruses in that family—that's that's, that's world-changing. That and is. And we're that right is huge. there.
2: You know, and building on—I I mean actually placing the scientific advancement aside and the fact that that our 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 scientific and and treatment and prevention picture is entirely different than it was in 2020 there's another piece that gives me a lot of optimism which is we're 19 months into this thing basically you sure uh, it's not 19 years it feels like my 19 math. years okay and 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 my mouth you know uh, people can quibble his mouth is uh, never wrong <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we're nearly two years into this yeah and we're adjusting socially we are figuring out how to some of us are
3: well i think did you I say think... some of us some I, of I, us i, I some mean, of yes. us are doing fine yes
2: there are the people who are who are still being foolish and idiotic and and putting themselves at risk and putting the, uh, other people at risk
1: well not only that but but primarily putting themselves first
2: absolutely pure selfishness i agree what i'm talking about is is a bigger sort of structural change in that in that we've figured out ways to to conduct business to to do work to and 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 we're getting accustomed to that i mean you remember at the beginning of the pandemic you had a nation of people who had to learn how to use zoom who had never touched it before yeah for example and i'm just citing that as one example and now it's like you know we everybody uses it it's just like it's it's part of life right it, we've we've integrated it into our lives we've made a lot of those adjustments you know uh, what i'm seeing in the in the few times that that i'm out in the world is you know people are masking people are distancing you know and and it's 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 becoming normalized how we live in this context and and i find that as cause for a lot of optimism you, because that's no keep
3: going. no no this has got to stop people need to stop putting themselves first people need to start considering everybody else we need to get back to a place where man i don't even need to know you but i want to be in the same room with you without having to worry that i'm gonna die in the next i think i think yeah no three I, weeks. I, Ty, I don't
2: think i don't think you and i are disagreeing i think I, the point i'm making is that as it's becoming more normalized for the majority of people, the the minority that are putting themselves first are going to feel more and more pressure to fall into line.
1: Yeah, I think Ty, what Chris was saying uh, is more along the lines of that. What he's been seeing is a normalization of the respect required. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. 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 Which no, and I and I feel you on your on your knee jerk reaction yeah. because yeah. if you left it. In the, in the other way, it winds up being a, 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 a growing callous in society of, you know, fuck you, I'm going to do what I want, and there are no repercussions for that. I do want to caution, though, that, you know, and for all our listeners out there, you know, Ty and Chris and I all live in Portland, Oregon. And we understand that Portland, Oregon, is kind of a special place the pacific Northwest ah. and the west coast yeah. you know we're 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 different, we're Cascadia, you know, and, and we are yeah and um we show generally speaking, i think you know, and a lot of people that have come and visited me here always remark on well and I'm speaking for Portland. There's a slightly different attitude that, you know, Chris will be able to speak to, you know, Chris will be able to speak to this phenomena that, you know, Portland's got a particular attitude and a particular social cachet about it, where a lot of people come in and say, wow, it's super friendly here. Everybody will talk to you. And you know, and Seattle has a different representation. <laughs> what we what we often call the Seattle stare.
2: I've never heard Seattle stare, but uh, there's the there's the Seattle chill. And well, um, the
1: Seattle stare comes from it's the look that you get when you're buying coffee and somebody looks at you and go and gives you the look of you're not from here. You're exactly, exactly.
2: You're not one of us. And 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 that gets to I, I uh one of my one of my really good friends in the hemophilia community, uh, who grew up in Kentucky, now lives in Bothell, which is outside of Seattle. And uh when I moved to Seattle with him, uh he, he, he refers to Seattle as the Great cool contest. Yeah, that's and, exactly it. And I it. think
3: that that perfectly captures Seattle's vibe.
1: I am which so is, much, cooler, am so than much you. cooler
3: than you. I used to think that Seattle really reminded me a lot of San Francisco.
1: Oh, there are shared there are shared attitudinal traits. There, yeah, yeah,
3: and then the city yeah. went and blew up,
1: right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, and in the nineties, the, the the city blew and up and just became
3: and, corporatized, and it's just it's just a corporate.
1: Well, and it's still very bifurcated. There's a It really is a half and half. Half of it is, you know, corporate, huge tech money. And the other half of it is hipster till I die attitude that, you know, uh, again, and and look, we're not throwing shade at you, Seattle. Uh, We all love you, Seattle. Okay, well. (laughs)
3: Because they throw shade at us all the time.
1: Well, that's true. Here I mean, in Portland, that's the same. I mean, all I, those Portlanders, I, oh. I, I grew up with, you know, I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and, of course, it was always Milwaukee versus Chicago. Sorry about that, Bears, but that Bears. The Bears. But, um, you know, here we have a certain view of life. We have a certain view of the way we interact with people out in public, and we understand, the three of us here in Portland, we understand that that doesn't necessarily always translate around the country. There's going to be different attitudes in, you know, well, Mark's, uh, Mark's, one of Mark's hometowns, uh, you know, Mobile, Alabama, or Sandusky, Ohio, or any, you know, anywhere else, pick your place. Even even New York. I mean, you know,
2: other, other urban. We We don't even have to leave the West Coast. I mean, no, we really don't.
3: There's a huge difference between Portland, Oregon and Eugene, Oregon, or Portland, oh, Oregon, yeah. and Salem, Oregon. The sure. huge disparity in, in the makeup of of those two
1: cities. But where I'm going with this is Where are you going with this? We understand that this attitude isn't pervasive around the entire country, let alone the entire world. However, for the most part, there are people doing the right things and mm. being conscious and being helpful and I don't want everybody thinking that we're still in worst case scenario. We're not seeing everybody being selfish. We're not seeing everybody going, fuck you, I'm gonna do what I want. There are more people doing the right thing and helping yeah. than not. Yeah, but I would, I would even see but but even saying so, we still need even more. People yes. to do the right so thing. Exactly. I, I mean, I, I mean, exactly.
3: First of all, this is not a pandemic. This is an endemic. This is not going to end. We are going to have yeah, to it's adjust. Not going to work. And that Agreed. I think that speaks a lot to what, what Chris was saying, even though I initially misunderstood it. We are starting to adjust to the idea of this is an endemic. Hopefully, this virus decides to tone down and be relatively equatable with the flu. That would be really, really nice. That's the best I think that we can ask for in this situation. And
1: there is a possibility that with Omicron, we're seeing that. We don't know, and I don't want to be misunderstood in saying that Omicron is coronavirus light. It's not. It's dangerous, and it's significant, and you should try to avoid getting it at all costs, because the big thing we don't know is even with Omicron cases, we don't know if we're going to have the same level of long COVID symptoms that right, some people are getting. We're damage. Not, yeah. We don't understand how this virus might affect other parts of your body, like cognition or energy levels or all that. We don't know. So we don't want people thinking that, oh, well, I'll just get it and get it over with. Because one of the other things that we see that we didn't see with the beginning with alpha, beta, and a few of the other variants is you can get reinfected with Omicron. And having gotten alpha or beta um, or any other previous strain of coronavirus does not protect you from Omicron. Omicron is like a fucking master lockpick that can get into pretty much anybody. So don't get it. Do everything you can to not get it.
3: Back to what I was saying. This is an endemic. We need to, we need to get used to the new paradigm shifts, because what used to be normal two years ago, I don't think that we're ever going to come back to. But at the same time, something's got to give. You know, I spent this first year of this um, pandemic being able to go to work, being able to go to a shelter. It was relatively low key shelter. It was we were taking a lot of precautions, but I was able to go to work. I was considered a, a a mandatory worker or whatever it was.
1: Were you considered an an essential worker? Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
3: Just because if you trace it back, you know, if I'm not working, people are on the streets. And if people are on the streets, holy crap, this thing is gonna spread. Right. But my point is is being able to go into work that that first year of the pandemic, uh, Gave me some kind of social structure, Mm -hmm. whereas in the last year or so, I've been working from home. Now, for those of you that don't know, Chris, Andrew, both introverts. And so this kind of lifestyle, sitting in this bubble, so to speak, really works well for them. I'm finding, as an extrovert, that I am starting to get really, really itchy. I need a crowd. But I need a crowd that's going to be kind of safe, that I can go, well, you know, some mistakes are going to happen, sure. But for the most part, if I just wear a mask and just, right, you know.
1: Everybody's rowing in the same direction absolutely. To, to, to help have this thing happen that we all need. Right.
2: Well, and I can relate to that a little bit, Ty. I'm, I'm more of an introverted extrovert. Uh, You're more I, of
1: an extroverted introvert, you mean.
2: Yeah, something like that. One or the other. I'm somewhere
1: in the middle of the continuum. You don't mind being alone from time to time, but you'd yeah, much rather I'm, be able to go out and be social.
2: I'm, I'm comfortable alone, but I also thoroughly enjoy and I find it very energizing to be out and around people. And so uh, while I don't feel the itch nearly as profoundly as I'm sure you do, it has been there for me and it's like Yeah,
3: I'm um God, I I'm actually starting to wanna and, go out and, and be around somebody. You all will probably recognize this a little bit more. I mean, I think that everybody felt it over uh uh the first lockdown particularly. I am starting to starting to have a time slip. Right? Things are just starting to get away from me in terms of time. Oh, I told hmm. you I would call you back and that was two weeks ago. What the hell? Are you sure? Really? Two weeks? Are you no Mm -hmm. right right so i'm really starting to have that warped sense of time that's starting to happen again. well
2: because yeah i mean time has become this sort of flat gray amorphous thing where it doesn't have the punctuation points that we structure our lives around
1: yeah and i don't want to minimize its effect on other people people in my extended family my circle all that yeah, I'll admit to the fact that, um, for, uh, and I am a classic introverted introvert. The, <laughs> I introvert. I can introvert? be an extroverted introvert. I can do people. Yeah, I am the introverts introvert. Yeah. I, uh, can turn it on. I'm not one of those people where I am always quiet. I mean, you guys know me when we're together, you know, none of us can shut the other up and that's because you, you guys are my people. When I don't have that, I can be fine for weeks at a time, not seeing really anybody. And that I'm not, I'm not anti-social. I just, I think I spent most of my social capital, uh, in my twenties and thirties. Uh, and in my forties, I kind of shifted over to where, um, I, I like being alone. I like doing my thing. I like having my partner and our, our little bubble of safety, um, but it wears on even me. And the, the way to get to the next thing where we can be social again is, as I said earlier, everybody doing the right thing, everybody giving a shit, not caring that you have a mask on. I dare anybody who's listening to send me information about somebody who died from mm-hmm, asphyxiation mm-hmm. because they were wearing a mask. There is no such thing. You know who dies of asphyxiation? People with COVID pneumonia.
2: Yeah, people in an ICU with a tube down their throat. Exactly
1: right. You want to avoid asphyxiation, So, Chris, didn't we start this the show fucking with mask?
3: having all this
1: optimism? <laughs> <laughs> all right. What we, there's a point. Have, have,
3: have, we, have we drug you down into the mud yet? In the Put
1: a point on the board for yourself there, Ty. <laughs> no,
2: no, you have not. You've, you've not. I'm, I'm, I'm standing my ground on this because, you know, I feel like 2022 is the year where we start really building momentum in adjusting to our, and I hate this expression, but it, it, it's
1: appropriate here, to our new normal. And I'll, I'll say this. I think 2022 has the ability, if anything, To force our hand, and not only our hand collectively, but more than that, to force the hand of those people who have been refusing vaccines, who have been refusing social distancing, who have been refusing to change their behaviors because this isn't going away. And those of us who have done the right things are getting tired of this. And those of us who might not have been willing to make a little bit of a, a, a ripple on the surface of, you know, social waters by saying, do the right thing. No, there are more people now being vocal saying, I am tired of this. This is continuing because not enough people are doing the right thing. And the social pressure that we're starting to see now, uh, you can't go to a concert unless you're vaccinated and you can show proof of vaccination. You can't get into a club when they're open if you're not willing to show proof of vaccination. You're not gonna be, I mean, You're not going to be able to serve in the military if you don't get vaccinated. Now, I'm not going to sit here and argue about vaccine mandates because I don't want us to go down that road, but even if it's not official pressure, what you're starting to see now is pressure from the private sector who does not owe you the same rights and liberties as the government does by way of a mandate. They can say, they can discriminate. They are Fully as long as it's able to discriminate. not on a protected class. Exactly right. And you're going to start seeing more of that. And I think 2022 maybe will just wear the other side into compliance. And you know what? I don't give a fuck how it happens. I, I want us all, before we go to break here, I want us all to appreciate the fact that at a, at a bare minimum, Covid has been an incredibly powerful teacher by way of making us examine the social constructs that we all took for granted. We were all uh, yes, it it, it actually did wake us
3: up, and not just not just the social constructs, but look at all the fissures and the cracks that we now see because of this virus. Whether it's the healthcare system, whether it's working uh um
1: infrastructure infrastructure
3: and 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 what it is is yeah
2: these fissures and cracks i mean the way i think of it they they were already there before the pandemic
3: hit the way i see it is we just weren't looking at them
2: the pandemic pulled back the skin and revealed the ugly viscera underneath right and and we're all looking well at least we see it now and we're aware of it and and that's uh, that's where action begins That's where change begins.
1: Well, I tell you what, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back here with a discussion of something that's not truly COVID-related. But until we come back on the other side of this, this is Keep Your Hat On. I'm Andrew Scott, along with Ty Robert Anthony and Christopher Vicano. And on behalf of Dr. Mark Peterson, we'll be back in just a second. Don't go anywhere.
0: Hey everybody, Michael, your stalwart announcer here, the voice of the Keep Your Head On podcast. We really hope you're enjoying the shows we put out every month and the bonus goofiness we try and throw in. If you do, we'd really appreciate your support. While we'd love it if you could help us out with a monthly donation by heading over to patreon.com nbbn, please don't forget that you can also support us by telling your friends, relatives, the hot Amazon delivery guy, hell, your potted fern about the show and do the like, click and subscribe thing. That's free and it helps us out more than you might suspect. We just want to keep putting something good out into this bananas world at this extra bananas time. And we want you along for the ride. No matter what, thanks so much for audio visualizing. Now, let's get back to the show.
1: And hello and welcome back. This is Keep Your Hat On. I don't need to keep hammering you in the head with that, but that's Ty, Robert Anthony, along with Chris Vacano. And, you know, we had just finished talking uh, in the first segment about kind of where we are in in, uh, society and culture as far as how we're living our lives in light of coronavirus. But one of the things that I've been noticing over the course of the pandemic is how we've changed our diet for entertainment, information, and really what we fill our our ears and our minds and our eyes with. You know, we're so, everybody is now so dependent on things like Netflix and YouTube and all these other streaming platforms and services. And in my mind, that's actually, that's kind of a good thing, you know, Due to our media habits, we've completely and utterly redesigned the media landscape over the last five, ten years to the point where the networks, the big networks, you know, when we were growing up, it was the big three. And then suddenly it was the big three and the snotty nosed little one coming along behind it.
2: Well, and then it was and then, yeah, it was and then it was the five, yeah. you know, Fox and then UPN yeah, and all and- that business.
1: But they're no longer driving the cultural discussion when it comes to entertainment. They're kind of turning into, I don't want to say also rans but they're not running the show anymore as it were. They're, they're almost kind of obsolete. Well, at least that model that they operated under is now obsolete.
3: It definitely seems like uh, the mainstream media is always racing to keep
1: up. Yeah, now... Before they were cutting the path. Now they're trying to keep up. I think you're absolutely right. But that brings us to a discussion of where did we first start seeing this shift? And this shift started happening long before streaming platforms, long before the internet. And Nixon, well, that's, you're not entirely (laughs) wrong, oddly enough, but you know, Chris, you said that you were watching a documentary recently that kind of dovetails yeah. into this.
2: Yeah, yeah, actually to your whole point uh and and yeah, I'm going to say the, you know, the the quality of the content on the streaming platforms now is is amazing. I mean, it's really and 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 so I'm following this documentary series actually on Hulu uh called The Dark Side of the 90s. And of course, as a Gen Xer, it's got particular appeal to me. And I think, I think it, it's, it's, that's the primary target audience. You know, I think Xers are the ones who are really going to look at that and appreciate it because that was the time period where we were involved in participating in and shaping culture you know we were we were the or, target Yeah, non- we were, we were turning
1: into the demographic that because we meant are the something. gen x so we were not doing this <laughs> right <laughs> well,
2: well well we were counter programming
1: it i mean or at least we were trying to look like we weren't doing
2: this well and dark side of the 90s talks about that at some length about how we were counter programming what the industrial powers the the music industry and the film industry and the television industry were trying to we're trying to sell us. We were like, "No, this is bullshit." We're going to do our own thing. And, and
1: and hey, it's encapsulated in one of my favorite slogans from our generation: "Kill your Kill television." Kill your television,
2: absolutely. So, sort of staring back to the subject of of kind of where we're at in terms of what we consume and and what we what we feed ourselves. I mean, before the streaming platforms really took off, you know, we had a lot of
1: you know reality TV. By the way, listeners, uh, that's uh, Chris's lawn guy <laughs> yeah, in the my background. Apologies. So we're going to have yep. to deal with that. Um,
2: so, uh, so you know, we got the reality TV thing, and I used to really peg the the birth of reality TV as as being 2003 when the when the writers' strike happened, and. I'm not saying, uh, please don't interpret me to be blaming the Hollywood writers. Uh, I think they were absolutely right to strike. I think they were being mistreated. I fully supported them in that. But what happened was uh, the studios and the television networks said, fine, screw you. We're not going to do written programming anymore. We're going to go grab Mark Burnett and launch Survivor. Exactly. And we're going and, and to start feeding you all of this garbage that doesn't take writers. It just takes a bunch of idiots in front of a camera fighting with each other, and you will gobble it up. And people did.
3: And I think, well, I think we, we, we really um... – might have a misconception of what reality TV is, too. Because while on the surface, it looks like this is reality, this is very choreographed. This is very oh, yeah. scripted, and this is very edited.
1: Right. So I, th- I think there's a really important distinction to make between, or not necessarily between, but reality television, what Chris is speaking to more is less reality television, in air quotes, and more... Unscripted. Oh yeah, yeah, like the yeah, television. It's
2: it's, it's kind of right? contrived
1: reality. Reality television. Yeah, because there's nothing real about reality. About right. most yeah. reality. Well, and television. it's
2: interesting that you mentioned cops because that actually that really emerged in the '90s, way before the writers' strike.
3: Right? Didn't no? Wait, wait, wait. Yeah, a, really wasn't that like the. The late 80s? Wasn't there like two strikes?
1: That, I was just going to say Cops is really kind of one of the OG. And Cops
3: was when it in direct comes response to, to a writer strike, but I don't know that it was the 2000...
1: No, the, it certainly
3: the, wasn't the 2000...
2: No, the yeah.
1: 2000, the 2003 strike is where where what we now think of as reality television right. really started right. gaining traction. Things like Survivor, Big Brother... And then you know later you know after the new the housewives of Marrakesh
2: these... I don't uh, yeah. well right Real Housewives right exactly or whatever and, well, and if we you trace know? it back this is actually where I connect this up to this documentary series I've been watching is one particular episode caused me to completely rethink citing two thousand three as the real origin point or the real turning point and actually it it goes way back into the nineties. And not even nighttime television, but daytime talk show. Mm, mm. Uh, Because in the 90s, we saw this transition, this uh, this, uh, steady but very fast transition from sort of high-minded, socially conscious daytime talk like like Phil Donahue and... um, Dick Cavett and and, 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 and all those. Yeah, guys that were... it, It was very topical. It was... You know, they would pick things apart. It wasn't in, uh, unlike Keep Your Hat On, actually, in a sense, where sort of ah. they they would have these lengthy, in-depth discussions about things. But then that rapidly deteriorated into shock TV.
1: Yeah, sensationalism. Uh, you know, and I mean, I, I want to be clear, too, in that, yes, there are exceptions to this curve on the scale that we see of when this happened. There were shows much earlier that if anything planted the seeds for this kind of talk you know you you bring up uh cops mm-hmm. as far as you know one of the one of the original uh reality shows i'm going to reach back into the 80s and point everybody's memory back to the Real World mm. on MTV mm. which was a groundbreaking Absolutely. Show. and that set the stage for Big Brother and... and all these yeah hidden cameras in a house full so of So I got I got to
3: say. I got I got to tell you right now. While while I can I can talk about this superficially and the effects that I've seen it have on those around me I have never been a reality Television
1: fan. I've not here as far as cl-
3: cops was never my thing. No, I don't want to yeah. watch yeah, people well,
1: suffer uh, for you know. Fun. If I want
3: to watch soap operas, I'd go to daytime television, right?
2: But, but there is yeah. clearly, I mean, that that's us specifically. But that, that there is clearly an American appetite. Oh, most for definitely. Otherwise watching people fight with each other, it wouldn't be there.
1: Oh, and it's not just it's not just American. I need to point to the fact that this is much more, instead of American, I will say Western, Mm. because Britain has a huge tradition of things like, I mean, Big Brother is still a huge going concern for them in in the UK. Um, And then there are shows like, you know, I mean, here in America, we've got Jersey Shore. Um, In the UK, they've got um, all sorts of shows showing young young culture no not even the not even that there there are yeah the ultimate are, in reality you know, that's the ultimate in unreality <laughs> exactly um, no they've got uh they've got shows like maiden chelsea uh which are all these uh, again very tawdry showing uh, essentially you know trendsetters and bougie type living and you know, really, you can go back. There are so many examples of what we'll call reality television that are anything but real. But this shift that happened, this, this changing attitude of what we constitute as entertainment really did start shifting tectonically in the 90s. There were, there were shows that laid the ground for it in the 80s. And when you go to um, talk shows, you know, Oprah is a a force of nature. Um, I believe that Oprah Winfrey is a genuine force for good, but at the same time, Oprah got their start at a time in the 80s where, number one, there were really very few women. Yeah. It was hollowed out. The whole thing was hollowed out. It was, it was all, it was all, it was basically Oprah and Jenny Jones. Yeah. Well, it was all, I mean, before Oprah, it was all white men. Yeah. Um, but the, the change between, I want to say casual talk about social issues, Bill Donahue and, and all that, that started changing in the eighties. And Ty brought up somebody that I was going to bring up, but he beat me to it. And that's a guy called Morton Downey Jr. Big mouth. Yep. And I watched Morton Downey Jr. only because back then I was getting home from the clubs at, you know, two, three in the morning, and they would replay Morton Downey Jr. Now, for those of you who aren't aware or don't remember, Morton Downey Jr. was, he was like the hyper version of, he was like a shock jock. Oh, I was just going to say, Morton Downey Radio.
3: Jr. really, and I did, I watched Morton Downey
1: Jr. a lot. He was and really provocative. Oh. That, that was, the, I mean. Th- he was less provocative and more antagonistic.
3: The shock value and, and that antagonism yeah. was what I was tuning into. And I was tuning into him for the same reason that I was tuning into Howard Stern at the time. Mm-hmm. What's he mm-hmm. gonna do next? Yeah, show me something I haven't seen before. And,
2: and
1: he was to I, I I guess I'm gonna pigeonhole him a little bit. Um, but he was a he was a very interesting dude, and we'll put a link in the description to uh, some information about Mort. He was kind of a libertarian. He didn't really have a political ideology. He came from a very interesting background, and. Kind of was a bit of a social chameleon, but what he did do better than anybody else was get in your face, and that's what his spectacle was. Yeah, that was really where, for me, the sea change started happening in TV broadcasting. Now, yeah,
2: he was—he was uh, unlike most other hosts who would set up the conversation and then let it unfold, and and let the conflict happen between the people on stage. Morton was incredibly abrasive with his guests. He would provoke that. Well, he would get in there, and he would yell at people, and he would argue with them right there on screen, and he would just
3: tear them apart, yeah. Can you imagine being a guest on his show?
2: But
1: I'm saying, he he would provoke that confrontation. And then you started to see... Uh, shortly thereafter, you started to see this new kind of television where instead of the Phil Donahues who were phasing out at the time, I think Donahue went off the air in like 89, and, 90. And Hugh Downs, Downs was right there. behind Exactly, and, Hugh Downs. Wasn't
3: there Marvin? What was his name? Big media mogul. Uh, oh, uh, I know who you're thinking of. Uh, Merv Griffin. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. And yeah. Mike Davis. No, of course. And, 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 Mike, and Mike Davis. Davis. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. All those guys were phase- being phased out because they were coming up on their due dates. Mm-hmm. But then you started seeing shows like Jenny Jones and Ricky Lake. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and even earlier- uh, On the other side, the most important one that probably survived that first wave and made something- was Jerry Springer. (laughs) Now, I happen to know a couple people, uh, or or knew a couple people, who were actually, and this was kind of pulling the curtain back on the reality of what this reality was, most of those conflict-based shows were all scripted. Mm -hmm. They were actually, they would literally have production points on this is when this person gets introduced. This is the point of conflict. This is what uh, you will do to antagonize those people. More so than
2: pro wrestling.
1: Oh, absolutely.
2: Not only that, but but the producers would go back into the green room and get the guests really, really that's, wired that's up what before I'm saying. they came out.
1: It was literally on the clipboard of, okay, now you have to go back into the green room. Feed them cocaine. Tell them this is what was said about them and get them ready to come out and be very antagonistic. And I had people that I knew that were kind of making a career of showing up on these shows. I had a friend who did that, uh, you know, show. where they, where you go where they would show up and you know, it was a show about I found my boyfriend cheating on me with a dog or something like that. Mm-hmm. And people that I knew Would be on these shows. A lot of them at the time were being produced in in and around the media bubble in Chicago. Yeah, exactly. Um, And
2: that's where most that was the epicenter of this. That's where most of the Springer moved from Cleveland to Chicago. Yeah. Oprah was in Chicago. And and I want to say, I want to punctuate the early days of Oprah, you know, she was down in the muck with the rest of them until
1: there was a time where she was a little bit more salacious than I think she would probably want to remember as well.
2: It was the Jenny Jones murder incident when everybody pulled back from it. Yeah. But Jerry Springer doubled
1: down on it. Exactly right. And we'll put a link to the uh, tawdry history of Jenny Jones uh, in the show notes as well. But all this shift in broadcast television media, I also remember very acutely the shift in broadcast radio. And, yeah. and part of it is because I, I'm a radio and broadcast nerd. I grew up, radio was my first love. Not television, radio. I would listen all night long to radio. I had that overheating transistor <laughs> bakelite radio <laughs> under my pillow, you know, where every morning I'd wake up and I'd smell that hot electronic smell. But really, this is, at a minimum, is mirrored. And quite possibly started in broadcast radio. Um, You know, we have so many memories of how broadcasting affected our lives and set the social tone that we all lived through. And on television, it was all very tawdry, it was all very sensational. It was about, you know, the big three sex and drugs and rock and roll. On radio, though, what we wound up getting was where the political change of tone happened. And not only the political change of tone, but the intellectual change of tone. Back when I was growing up, you know, overnight radio really was, you know, at the watershed time, which is about 11 p.m., local radio broadcasts would shift over to things like uh, local interest, um, very small focused talk shows about the community. That's when they would give time Uh, to uh, local broadcasters to have a show because the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, mandated that a certain number of hours per day be devoted to local content. And that's where they would ram in all the shows that quote-unquote nobody ever listened to, Mm -hmm. um, you know, talking about local things. But when the FCC, well, and this is something that pre-show we all kind of, said, well, this, is a, this was a watermark. Uh, when the FCC really had its claws clipped, we grew up in a time where, as I said, there was a mandate for certain, a certain percentage of your broadcast day being devoted to offerings that were f- locally focused or were not, not something that, had a huge, massive appeal, but still, the FCC demanded that there be representation for it. But after the FCC change, a lot of that was taken away. And what happened was broadcast radio changed to a lot of syndicated broadcasts, broadcasts that were more national in focus. And that's where we started getting this idea of overnight radio. And the leader of that change, there were, there were two of them. One was a daytime and one was a nighttime, and they were both syndicated and they were both wildly popular. On the political side, in the 80s, this is when we started getting people like Rush Limbaugh. Um, and, 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 you know, I listened to Limbaugh in the very late 80s and early 90s. Rush Limbaugh in the late eighties and early nineties was a nobody. He was uh, a broadcaster out of, you know, the Sacramento area. Um, and you know, we can either thank or blame Rush Limbaugh for the rise in popularity of Snapple (laughs) because Snapple was one of his first sponsors. But on the other side of the daytime nighttime dial was a guy named Art Bell. And Art Bell had a a show called Coast to Coast AM. And when I was in college uh, and was a musician and DJ and roadie and stuff like that, um, I would listen to Art Bell at night because Art was on from midnight till 6 a.m. And Rush Limbaugh brought in conservative talk and conservative points of view. Art Bell really, for me, was the rise of the conspiracy theory entertainment machine. And we heard things on Art Bell's show that you didn't hear anywhere else. I mean, Art Bell was one of the first places that I heard about Terrence McKenna and right. people like, um, George Nouri who took the show over from him in a little while. But, and, it, and I'm not saying that there was no conspiracies before Art Bell. I mean, God knows there was, but... There was this shift in all of broadcast media to give voice for good or ill to things that hadn't had the same level of visibility and the same public airing. And I don't want to say that that's where broadcast came off the rails, but it certainly is in the 90s, the time where broadcasting shifted from being something that everybody could enjoy, whether or not you agreed with it was not salient, but everybody could enjoy an experience to, we're going to give more room in the discussion for things that were pretty fringe up until now.
3: You know, I really have a little bit more, I like Andy, I'm just really more in turn to the radio and what the radio gave me as an individual from a little kid all the way up. And so when Clinton – when the Clinton administration deregulated uh, uh, some of the uh, uh, FCC uh, uh, regulations, right, um, what? we had – It kind of gutted it. it. And that's exactly what it does because what we have now is we have three, we have three major conglomerates that own every or, – or almost every single radio station – In
1: the U S yeah. And I think that that's an important point. That's not something that people today appreciate. because They are controlling the messaging. Exactly. Not only are they controlling it, they have a stranglehold on it. When, when the three of us grew up, there was always at least two stations in your market that were really free flying and, 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 and their own beast. Now, now late '80s, yeah,
3: late '80s. I had I had uh, KROQ, right, which managed to still somehow be a beacon even after, for a short time anyway, even after these regulations were done away with. And I had 91X, which came from south right. of the border, down yeah. in Baja. They had a huge they transmission awesome. tower and. I could get the shit that nobody else could. Well, and this is where I had a little bit different experience of radio
2: in in the 80s and into the 90s because for me radio was all about music. I wasn't at all interested in talk. I always thought that was boring. And growing up in Denver, every station on the air was local, had its own flavor, had its own, mm-hmm. had its own sort of unique mm-hmm. thing. And in the late 80s, Okay, I was I was a little headbanger kid. We all were. And so, so you know, every every Friday and Saturday night, I was glued to Metal Shop. I uh, had my yes. little crappy Maxell tapes, and I was recording it so that I could listen to it all week. Because that was the only, like, all-metal show you Charlie could Kendall. Get, uh during the week. And then magic came to the AM dial. Z-Rock out of Texas. Oh,
1: dude. Oh, man, I'm so yeah, glad yeah. that somebody else remembered it was Z-Rock. all
2: metal shop oh, all yeah. the time. Mark the Shark. And I
1: actually, mean, interestingly, Mark the Shark, Mark so the shark Z-Rock. on Z-Rock, actually, when Z-Rock folded, he jumped over to one of my stations in Milwaukee uh, and was a very popular DJ in Milwaukee. And I believe at first he jumped over to 93QFM uh, and then later wound up for a little while on Laser 103, which is now the Hog in Milwaukee. But, um, yeah, I'm really glad somebody, I, I was working, <laughs> I was working, I was working overnight at a gas I station we didn't have yeah. Z-Rock in Milwaukee, but we would be able to get, the, and our Z-Rock was FM. We were getting the FM send of Z-Rock mm. out of, I believe it was either, I think it was Detroit or possibly Ann Arbor. Uh, michigan and on, on good weather i'm guessing it pro it was probably ann arbor but um y- yeah there was there was a, sh- a shift going on in in the tone um but right about then and i mean for me z rock was 86 87 ish yeah. yeah yeah 86 87 i was working at a guy i was I was and working it was just at a like gas station overnight. Radio. Well, actually it was slightly less gonzo than you might remember because one of the things that Z-Rock was doing was they were one of the first, um, stations where they would replay their shows off cartridge off of, well, at the time it was DAT, it was digital, uh, tape. Right. But you would be able to hear the same show, um, uh, either six hours or 12 hours later. Um they were they're working on a, something yeah, like that. It was on yeah, like a six hour
2: cycle, I think. Right yeah.
1: about that time, 93, ninety-two, ninety-three, first Clinton administration. That's when mm-hmm. suddenly you got these organizations. you started hearing these radio broadcasts saying a shamrock communications. And then suddenly it was clear uh-huh. channel. And now Where where it came where it became like the
3: uh um where I began to notice it the first time that I really noticed it after these regulations went away. And by yeah, the way, had we had KNAC uh yeah. down in Southern. And and KNAC was just nothing but 24 hours wall to wall, bang your head until it's bloody.
1: Hey, KNAC was one of the places that broke Metallica. Yeah.
2: yeah. Well and what's what's interesting about syndicated radio is and 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 this was the point I was going to make. Is at the time I thought Xerox was the best thing since sliced bread. Now looking back, you know, hindsight being 2020, I rue the day that Xerox ever came along because now every single station in this market is national, yep. right. with like one exception. Right. So and yeah. that bugs the hell out of me because there's there's no uniquely Portland thing. Well, right? th- now
3: I would I would go I. Back up. I'll come back to that in just a minute. The first time that I really noticed this uh, uh, conglomerate thing was there was a radio station that popped up that called itself Pirate Radio. Right. <laughs> and not only was it in, in Southern California, but Pirate Radio was being broadcast all up and down the United States. It was
1: Anything it but, was the exact and they wanted of to, to give
3: you that impression that they were breaking the laws and breaking the rules and everything. And they else. were
1: stealing it directly off of the original model, the OG that I grew up with, where I had friends that lived in uh, France and the Netherlands and the UK, and they would send me right. tapes of real pirate radio. And by the by the way. Tiny little factoid, little interesting thing here. You want to know who really started out their performance career in pirate radio? Idris Elba. No. Idris Elba was a legit pirate radio broadcaster in the Uh UK playing hip-hop and house on a boat out. In the Mm -hmm. oh
3: right, and there's there's that movie, yeah, yeah. That movie is about that. I
1: used to get cassette tapes sent to me from friends. We would have tape exchanges because what we had here in the states that was cutting edge was college radio, and so I would send friends of mine in Europe tapes uh, of of well, our college radio, our big college radio station in Wisconsin was WMSE which was uh broadcast uh, radio from the Milwaukee School of Engineering where my dad went to school and so you know I would send them tapes of REM driving and crying uh you know uh all these these big the B52s before they broke that's
2: one of my that's one of my fondest memories of uh, my days at ASU was. Yeah. I was actually on the air for three years as, as a and DJ those days. Oh God,
1: I miss those days. And I think that's I where too. we're going to kind of wrap this discussion up is we live in a time now where we suffer from a combination of an embarrassment of riches by way of how you can get your media or entertainment versus, or at the same time, I guess, this homogenization of media. And that's one of the reasons why I'm such a big supporter of the media creators that are doing their own thing on YouTube, on Twitch, on Instagram. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, look, we're four guys currently, three guys, but we're four guys and we're going to keep doing this stupid podcast. Even if nobody listens, although thank you to everybody who is listening not because we want to be famous, not because we want to be rich. I think we've literally earned uh this is we're coming up on our year anniversary. I think we might fifteen dollars? I was gonna say twenty. Oh, okay um yeah, and that doesn't count merch sales to Jason. We love you, brother. Yeah, <laughs> we we Jason, love you, Jason. Star, man. <laughs> um you know, we're not doing this for money, we're not doing this for popularity, we're not doing this for attention. We're doing this because in this pandemic This is one of our management tools for all four of us to keep our fucking sanity and at the same time, maybe have a conversation that we wouldn't normally have in our waking hours uh, or our time, you know, uh, not on mic.
3: Or our conscious
1: hours. (laughs) right? (laughs) Good point. We're
2: also all doing it and going to continue doing it because I think we also share the same philosophy that... It is okay to be the voice out in the wilderness. Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I don't know
3: about you guys, but I am doing it for the money and the fame. And quite frankly, after a year, I'm a little bit pissed. <laughs>
1: <laughs> don't blame you there. I, don't, I, I dragged both of you into this wacky-ass idea of mine more than anything because I wanted the world to hear. And, and this is something that I'll throw out there to the listening audience. Ty and Chris and Dr. Mark didn't know each other until I insisted that we all do this. And I will throw another person into the mix our dear announcer, Mr. Brumage. Right. Um, Oh,
3: miss your brother. Haven't heard your voice in a while.
1: Well, you're going to hear it this time because I'm going to make sure that I get him his information to, uh, do our, uh, intro here. Uh, you need that beautiful baritone. <laughs> yeah. Well, not a baritone. He is a bass. He is a basal uh, profundo. Fair uh, doc- my bad. Mark, uh, apologies, <laughs> m- m- you know, uh, again, for everybody who doesn't know, Dr. Mark is my philosophy professor from college and my mentor, um, and Ty and I know each other from our Zen practice here in town, and we helped uh, build a Zen temple together. And Chris is my partner's former partner, although we live in a weird little bubble of of you know help and support to each other. We're a we're a new kind of family. Uh, Mister Brumage is uh, a former compatriot that I used to work with at uh, the Portland Opera and at uh, the uh, Broadway Across America. And I dragged these guys into this with me because more than anything, I just wanted to do something that might possibly make people smile throughout this miserable experience that we're all going through. And that really points me back as, as kind of a way to button this up. If this were... 40 years ago, I would be hoping to listen to something like this on that little plastic Bakelite transistor radio stuffed under my pillow. We don't have that anymore. And so I wanted to make that happen for people, even if it's 12 people around the world. If you would have told 14-year-old me that at some point in the future, there would be people in India and Pakistan and Brazil and Paraguay listening. Don't forget Nepal. Uh, and, uh, sorry, Nepal. Um, listening to something that I was doing, I, it would have blown my fucking mind. Wait, Nepal? Yeah, we had a listener in yeah. Nepal. We had? I don't know. I haven't checked the metrics lately. (laughs) (laughs) We did it one time. Now I'm (laughs) even more
3: pissed because I'm actually, the little fame and money that I do have, I'm losing right before my eyes right now. Exactly. And you know what? That
1: 16 cents that you've earned from doing this show, that would go a long way in Kathmandu. Yeah, well, see? But we're going to keep doing this. I mean, God, what I wouldn't give to be able to do a classic radio show and actually play music. This is kind of like our version of what we all grew up with, with our local morning team, except for one of us is a PhD. There was a lot of good that came out of that. There was community building. There was a a generating a sense that we're all in something together and it wasn't politicized. And look, I'm not lying and I'm not going to try to make it sound like the three or the four of us don't have a political point of view. Of course we do. But it doesn't have to be everything. We can talk about so many different aspects of life. And before we sign off, one of the things I'm going to seed the conversation next time. Ty, you've already taken care of this. Mark and Chris and I are going to be getting caught up with you because one of the things that we do want to start doing here on this show is we have opinions about things like film and TV. And... We're going to, the three of us that remain, we're going to watch Don't Look Up, and we're going to talk about it um, when, when yeah. we are uh, on our cool. next show, but we are out of time for this show on behalf of Dr. Mark Peterson, who's busy setting up his nest with uh, Alex. Hi, Alex, again. Hi, Alex. Um, Hi, Mark. We miss you. you know, did you say
3: this Mark, is what... or did you say Nark? I said no, Mark. I yeah, okay. Narc. No, I did not say Nark.
1: Definitely not, I know him too well But this has been Keep Your Hat on the Show Where, as we just proved We don't know where we're going to go I'm Andrew Scott, that of course is Christopher Vacano And our good friend Ty Robert Anthony And goodbye. thank you so much for joining us And see you next time Because we may end up Miles Miles from here Thanks a lot guys, we will talk to you all soon Everybody stay safe, wear your mask, get your boosters and fucking take care of
0: each other, huh? Well, there's a chunk of time you can't get back. From Portland, Oregon, this has been Keep Your Hat On, a big little show about a whole lot of nothing in particular. Keep Your Hat On is a Narrowband Broadcast Network production in association with PodSquadPDX.com. Andrew Scott, executive producer. Robert Anthony and Chris Vacano, associate producers. Our theme music was written and produced by Andrew Scott, along with help from Ron Kajawa. Website design and maintenance by Vacano Creative, Chris Vacano Webmaster, available at vacanocreative.com. Audio and video production by Andrew Scott, available at andrewscottmedia.com. Got ideas or comments for the show? email us at talkback at kyhopodcast.com and don't forget to like click and subscribe on behalf of the boys i'm your announcer michael brumage thanks for listening Uh, i guess for mark the shark
1: peterson the burnt tony and chris volcano i'm andrew scott see you next time on (laughs) keep your hat on the only show with hats nbbn the narrow band broadcast network the focus is on you